hi, this is an unexpected launch, a show about stories and the people behind them. I'm speaking with people who've gracefully navigated unexpected life circumstances. These are stories of resilience, connection, and community, stories of lives being rewritten, reimagined, and rebuilt. I'm Kirsten, and today's story is about Matthew and Shay. Matthew is navigating a kidney transplant and rejection during an unprecedented pandemic. They are leading the discussion on the importance of human connection and lifting people up. You may have met Shay. She was my guest on episode 22 and she's the host of The Shay Show. I'd love for you to listen to our inspiring conversation that was centered around race in the United States. And Matthew, Shay's husband, is a father and a fighter. He has an autoimmune disease called IgA nephropathy. And this is a condition that leads to kidney failure. About two years ago, almost two years ago, Matthew underwent a kidney transplant and has been navigating recovery in the midst of a pandemic. Matthew and Shay, welcome to an unexpected launch. Hey. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having us. Thank you for being here. Matthew, I'm gonna take us back a little bit. This was in the spring of 2014. And at that point, you were an active kidney failure requiring dialysis about four hours every other day. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about your diagnosis of IgA nephropathy? Yes, well, it's, it actually took a very long time to come to that. Um, I experienced a lot of problems probably over the last 10 or 15 years and never really knew what was going on until uh, finally my primary doctor realized that my uh, kidney function was a little low um, compared to what it should be. And so then she put me in, in touch with a nephrologist. Um, and it, after about three months of waiting to get in to see him, he, he was finally able to diagnose uh, the issue. So when you, when you heard that, that diagnosis, I mean, that had been a long time coming. And so yeah. when you finally had that diagnosis, how did that feel? Well, you know, it, it was good to know, but it was also not so good to know. <laughs> it's like, you know, um, that you got a, a tough road ahead of you because you've got to face a, you know, a tough transplant issue. I have to talk to my wife about this stuff and let her know what's going on. And um, just, you know, just a lot goes along with it. Mm -hmm. Well, and then dialysis. Uh, so for, for so many people who don't really understand the true impact of, of dialysis, can you tell us a little bit about just the physical and the emotional toll of dialysis? Right. So basically what you have to look forward to is uh, each, each week you have dialysis three, at least three times a week if you go into the center. And those are four hour sessions each time. Um, and that's just on the machine. Of course, you've got to be there 30 minutes early, 30 minutes after. Um, so it, it really takes about five hours out of your day to, to do it. Um, it is emotionally, it is, it can be very difficult at times because there's some days you just don't want to go, you know, you're just like, I am tired of this. I'm sick of it. I, I don't want to go today, but you have to push through because you don't really have an option. Um, you know, until you can get a transplant, you, you can't go but so long off of dialysis and 
you won't be here anymore. So <laughs> um, it's, uh, you know, it, it can be tough. You know, it's tough knowing that in the back of your head. It's like, I have to do this just to, to live, you mm -hmm. know? So let me ask you, those days where you, you didn't want to go, and, and, and I, I believe me, I so understand, and I, and I think that there are so many people who are going to relate to that, whether it's dialysis or another type of chronic disease where you just, you get tired of treatment. And though you know it's life-saving, that can be really difficult to push yourself forward. So how did you get yourself in the car into the center on those days where you just weren't feeling it? You know, I just basically just had to put my head down and just do it. I, 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 there was really no secret to it. Um, nothing that I did special. I just had to get up and go, you know, and once I get over there, I, I, I'm okay. Um, you know, dealing with those needles and stuff. It's not a lot of fun. Those things are huge. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it was, it was difficult at times to, to get up and go, but it, it, I definitely was able to to push forward because I knew I had to, you know, I have family uh, that I want to see, uh, you know, in the future. And, um, and I just want to be here as long as I can be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and Shay, I know that it wasn't just difficult on you. And as, as is the case with, with any kind of illness, it's not just the, the person who's affected, but the, the family as well. And, you at that time were caring for your daughter, you became Matthew's caregiver and the primary income earner. And one of your darkest days was learning that Matthew was going to need a transplant. And you felt like you were carrying Mount Everest on your back. Can yeah. you take us back to that time and, and share a little bit about what that was like for you? So, um, you know, whew, uh, the, this is wow this is bringing up a lot like things that i've just grown used to living and then you're asking these questions i'm like oh okay yeah um when i think i started feeling the mount everest on my back when we we knew that it was um a kidney disease and we knew that it was destroying his kidney i think at the time when they figured it out you were like down to like 60 percent yeah like upper 50s I think yeah okay so like 50 ish mm -hmm. percent so that was a little shocking because we're it, you go from like you knew there was just a lot of things that were going wrong but we didn't know what was wrong so once we found out it was a kidney disease if I'm honest I remember feeling two things I remember feeling a sense of relief like we finally knew what was wrong mm -hmm. and then I remember initially feeling a disconnect with the magnitude of what was just told to me. Like someone said, okay, hey, by the way, no more lollipops. Okay. Like it wasn't terrible at the moment. It was like, whew. And then it wasn't terrible. And then the day-to-day -day living, you know how sometimes time allows things to become more real for you? So time allowed it to become more real. And I had to go out and I had to start working because he couldn't work. And it wasn't even so much that he needed a transplant initially that made me feel like Mount Everest. It was the living with someone who I knew was an active kidney failure. And we were seeing different things like, like old nails fall off, like different things were just falling away. Things that had been a part of his 
constitution, his ability were just falling away. So it was all of that, you know, he is six foot four. He'd always been like a big guy. And I think to, to see if I could tell a little story when it got at its height for me to see him lose his ability to do things that I had grown used to or expecting or expecting of him or taking for granted. We used to have, so on Tuesdays, our garbage days, tomorrow is garbage day for us, garbage and recycling day. I think I told you this story. And the bins would be down at the street and it took everything to get them down the street. You know, our daughter's not particularly listening. I need you to help me. So oftentimes what it looked like was I would work a full day of work I would come home and I'd have to put these damn garbage bins down by the street because he physically couldn't do it. We weren't, you know, rallying our child enough. So she really wasn't helping. And I just remember feeling so overwhelmed and, and what was indicative of my overwhelmness was after Tuesdays, Wednesdays, typically on Tuesday night, early Wednesday morning, people bring their bins up, back up to their house. We have a very long driveway. And I used to look at the quality of my life and ascertain where I was in losing my mind and what day were we at and those bins were still there. And oftentimes it would be Saturday or Sunday or maybe Monday again, and the bins were still there. So it was all of that that just, it was climbing up a mountain that I didn't really know what the length of it was. I didn't know how high it was. I didn't know when I was going to breach the clouds. Um, it just was a lot. It was leading to the full kidney failure that I think I felt the most of it. Knowing that he was gonna have a transplant was the, was the carrot at the end of the stick for me for the longest time. Yeah, for sure. So Shay, I wanted to touch on something and that that's becoming a caregiver because here's the person that you love and you're seeing Matthew not being able to do the things that you had come become used to that were part of the rhythm of your relationship. And there, there's so much pressure on the caregiver and none of us are trained to be a caregiver. We don't have the medical background. We, there's so much as you, you know, you, there was so much that was unknown for you. Yeah. On those days when you when it was Sunday and you were looking at those trash cans at the end of your driveway, what kept you going? Where where did that strength come from? Because you, you pulled them back in at some point. Where did that strength come yeah. from? You know, <laughs> well, I knew I I knew I had to keep going. Um and what is interesting to me is that the harder life became and the more that was required of me, the harder and more committed my constitution was to doing it. And I do believe in God. And so I did feel empowered by an energy that is bigger and greater than myself. And many times I wasn't even conscious of it. I just saw the bins and with a heavy heart and often tiredness and frustration, I would go down 
and get the bins and bring them up because it had to be done. We can do hard stuff. We can do exceptionally hard stuff, stuff that you don't want to do, that you don't even consciously process that you can do, you can do. So where did it come from? I think one, it comes from, I think we're created to do some hard shit. <laughs> and then two, I think that leaning into the unknown, unseen, ever-present, all being that I call God or the divine, that was critical, critical. I think that many of us have a strength inside of ourselves that we don't even know is there until we're called to rely that's upon it. it. And that's what difficult, that's the gift of difficult life. That's the gift of difficulty. That's the gift of trauma. That's the gift of hardship. The gift of hardship is that you will see a part of yourself that you've never seen before. Like I was talking to someone, and I, I can't even remember what, and I did not perceive myself as a strong brave, bold person. I saw myself as a people pleaser, as um, not saying what I wanted to say when I wanted to say it. I saw myself as being crushed by the very things that I was living through. And when I, when this person was telling me how they saw me and I wasn't even me like going, how do you see me? They were just like, man, you are just so strong. And I was like, who are they talking about? Who are they talking about? <laughs> right. Are you, who are you talking about? Cause you ain't talking to me. Um, and the gift of that, my point is the only way that I could even be perceived as that, as I, they were walk, they were watching me go through mm -hmm. hard stuff that I didn't even realize were crushing because to be crushed was not an option. Yeah. I mean, it just wasn't, we have to eat, we have to live. Yeah. So, you know, Matthew, as we've, we've talked about a little bit and we've alluded to this, because your kidneys were failing, you, you needed a transplant. You can't be on dialysis indefinitely. And being placed on a transplant list is an arduous process. This is not a quick process. Can you share what it was like, just the process of knowing you needed a transplant and then waiting for that perfect match to arrive? What was that like? Yeah, that was it was a lot. Yeah, we had, you know, there was just lots of tests and things that you have to do because basically in order to get a transplant, you have to be pretty healthy other than your kidney. I mean, you can't have any other issues. If you got other issues, they won't let you have one. So it's, uh, you know, I have to go through all these heart tests, stress tests, electrocardiograms, mm -hmm. uh, you name it, I had to do it and die tests and yeah. all kinds of things, you know, so it took probably six months of testing, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, it was a um, lot. Uh, six months of just going through stuff to find out if you were even gonna be eligible. I mean, then you have to go to class. Yeah. You remember you go to a seminar. Yeah. And that's when I had the, I mean, this is, this is a little joke aside, but like in the middle of all of this, it was just like, you know, you feel like when I went to law school and prepared to go to law school and you had to take the LSAT, study for the LSAT, take the LSAT, send it out, try to get it. Like, it felt like that. It felt like a very rigorous, rigorous process. And here we are in the seminar. And I just remember, see, this is how life is. This is how good God is. There's always that moment of levity. We're sitting there and I just can't take it anymore. And I remember, remember I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. So it's not the Pacific Northwest. We know you guys get way more snow. 
But these people, when there is snow or ice, like we lose our minds down here. They're like, close down the city. No school today. We'll let you know when school starts. And that day, it, we were in the middle of a snowstorm. And so that this thing that had been on the calendar for months was like, hey, it may or may not happen. Keep calling into this 1-800 number and we'll keep you up to date, uh, you know, on the weather channel. And so we, I remember calling and they're like, oh, yep, it's going. So it's in an hour. We get in the car and we're driving there and you get there. And the, you know, the, the depth of what is happening is that you are going to a seminar with other people who are in active kidney failure, who are learning the ins and outs about navigating the kidney um, uh, versus kidney transplant world, what that would look like, what that process is, because it's a, it's a, it's not an intuitive process. It's not one that is based on intelligence. It's not one that's based on education. It's purely based on, have you done this before? And hospitals have a very nebulous, it's not this very clear direct line to it. And every hospital has its own processes. Um, processes. So here we are, we're in this place and that's when I also learned how much kidney disease affects black people is because I didn't think about kidney disease before, but every room we walked into, Matthew was always one of the only white people in there. And I, and it started hitting me. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So A, there are a lot of people affected by this. B, the vast majority are people of color and it just felt more real. And so we're in there and I'm feeling a bit somber and a bit overwhelmed. And they show this video of this young football player who's from Charlotte, North Carolina, who actually played for Seattle. Hmm. Yeah, I think he played for Seattle. And um, he came back home for summertime and he was just messing around with one of his friends in a truck or something. Somehow he's not driving. The truck is hit. He receives a mortal wound and when they come to get him at the site of the accident it is really it, it's it's very obvious to the medics that he is not going to live but they get I mean he's a football star they get him to the hospital our main hospital and he's pronounced dead on arrival and he is from a simple family not wealthy not educated people and his mother knew instinctively I donate everything she donated everything that could be donated and she wasn't someone who had a lot of emotion. And then he, um, a year later, she's brought back to the facility and there is over a hundred people there, the vast majority of whom are white and they have received something of love from him, his eyes, his veins, something. And she breaks down. And so this is a moment of we're all like crying in the room where you're seeing the power of organ donation. Yeah. You don't need it. Give it. What a lot of people don't appreciate when, when you receive a diagnosis of a chronic illness or are being diagnosed for cancer, it is almost like a full-time job to manage your that that diagnostic pathway and, and oftentimes treatment and I think sometimes people don't appreciate the 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 time that is involved and the effort that is involved and people think oh well you've you got a breast cancer diagnosis well I'm sorry to hear that but 
what they don't realize is somebody is at the, the, the number of steps that it takes and then Shay is you as the caregiver. And I just want people to have an appreciation that the need that comes is, as a community member, how can yeah. you step up? How can you, how can you be that, that supportive friend or family member? And, and I think it's people just don't appreciate because they don't know. And so I appreciate you, Matthew and Shay, opening up and, and giving us that window into really how it does take over for that period of time. It really takes over your life. It does. But, you know, I think that organ transplant, it is, it is as you said, Shay and Matthew, it is such a gift. And, and Matthew, I'd love to just hear from, from your perspective. What would you like people to know what it is like to be the recipient of a donated organ? Well, in my case, I had a good friend of mine who actually stepped up and decided to get tested to see if he could donate his organ to me. Um, and that process was long too. <laughs> Took him a long time to go through the same kind of things I was going through. Um, and it was, it was a lot. And, and to me, it was just probably one of the most amazing things I've ever been through to have somebody care that much, mm -hmm. you know, and want to help you that much. Um, you know, getting a deceased organ, I guess, is, is, is great, you know, but having a living donor give you one, there's just, there's just a lot more that goes into that, you know. It was overwhelming. It was very overwhelming. I mean, he get perfectly healthy guy. Yeah. First of all, that he was a match. Because just because you're somebody's friend, you can't give an organ. Right. Yeah. Usually you have to find a family member or somebody. Um, with like one in 200,000. I forget what the odds are, but the odds of my friend being able to give me a kidney were very, slim. very slim. Yeah. But it worked out that he could. And uh, so our, our blood types were close enough to match and the antibodies and everything that had to match. I mean, it was, it was a lot of stuff that had to match in order to, to say this is a go. And uh, there were several times where it was a go and then it wasn't a go and then it yeah. was a go and then it wasn't a go. And it was, it was like, man. <clears throat> Emotionally, would I, I'm curious. I want to know what you felt. Were you sad? Were you depressed? Were you? <sighs> all of it, all of it. I mean, I, I went through periods of d depression just because, you know, you're looking at something that, I mean, it affects every, every part of your life like um, just not being able to do the things to help out around the house. Um, it makes you feel useless, and worthless, you know? And so you start having those feelings and you're like, man, I, I used to could just jump up and do this and feel fine. And now if I try to jump up and do that, I can't breathe in within 30 seconds because um, it affects your breathing, it affects all kinds of things. So- um, Things that you don't even know. Yeah, you don't even know like the shortness of breath is coming. And, eyesight hearing yeah everything Who knew yeah. yeah everything starts to diminish a little and um so you have to you know you have to deal with all those things but as far as you know feeling i mean it was just a great feeling to know that my friend would step up for me like that and and it was a really great feeling to know when it all came together and that uh you know that he uh, was going to be able to to actually do it um, and then we started making plans for it. Um, so, you know, that, that became more encouraging. And like Shay said earlier, the, the, the kidney was kind of the carrot at the end of the, mm -hmm. the thing, because you're, 
you're put on dialysis and they tell you, and, and remember that same meeting too is where they told us um, the majority of people only be on dialysis for five years and then they die. I will never forget that number. I will yeah. never forget that number. Yeah. That was just like horrible to see. Like, yeah. and it was written. It yeah. was written. It was like yeah. in that notebook. And it yeah. said, the average person lives five years on dialysis. So if you do not get, essentially, if you do not get a kidney transplant within five years of being on dialysis, bye-bye. Yeah. That's, and, that's, and it's not for everybody, but on average. Yes. Yeah. I mean, some people have gone 20, 30 years on dialysis, but for the most part. The averages um, of all of those numbers. Right. Five years. But a lot of that too is because most people are older than me um, when this happens. Yeah. You um, were young. And also uh, they have other issues too. That's the reason probably why they didn't get a kidney. Because if you have diabetes or any other thing going on besides, you're not going to get a kidney. And uh, <clears throat> so those people are, they're pretty much relegated to dialysis and they know it, um, which is very difficult. Um, at least for me, I was on dialysis knowing that I had a friend who was trying to give me a kidney and there was a possibility of, you know, six months, a year from now that this might work out. And it wound up working out. Um, unfortunately, uh, the kidney never functioned inside my body the way it did in his. And uh, the disease that I have kind of over time just began to. Pretty quickly, though. Yeah, it was pretty quickly. Like two months in, and it's like they found, I think two months in, you had a, a biopsy. Yeah, they, they kept expecting it to what they call it, kick in. They're like, You're, it's going to be dormant for a little while, but then it's going to kick, kick in. in. And so we, you know, when it was at operating at 30%, we were like, okay, it's going to kick in and everybody's telling me how much better I'm going to feel. And that week, I remember though, I remember you being like, whoa, you were standing right there and you're like, I think I feel yeah. what people feel. Yeah. Like I feel, I think I feel how you feel sometimes, yeah. Shay. Like I can, I feel like I can do stuff. Yeah. And I remember just looking at him and being so excited yeah. and so in awe, like, yes. So for it to go from that to that have been the peak. And then every week when he got tested, it just kept scaling back. God, it was horrible. Yeah. That was horrible. Yeah. It was, it was tough going through that because you know, the, the carrot that you have been waiting on is now all of a sudden not doing what it was supposed to so do. Dead. So now you know that you're being told you're going to have to go back on dialysis. You're going to have to go back through the kidney process in order to get a second one. Um, and now I don't, for me, a lot of times there's not even a carrot of the new kidney because if I get one, I know that my body is going to attack it, you know, and which is, um well not the best feeling <laughs> i know i'm sorry i'm sorry to interrupt you but we i did you know because i was there i i did ask his and that's see that's a part of being the caregiver because this disease saps him from so much and he already is not probably the glass half full kind of gal that i am you know and you couple that with this disease I, I'm aware that my reaction, my response, my actions, they 
they set the tone for my family. I'm aware of that. I'm aware that my actions set the tone for him. So that is really a horrible feeling to feel like, well, what else? Like, who cares if I get another kidney? My body's just going to do the same thing. So then we were going back through this process. Um, they've got him. Good news. He's now back on the kidney transplant list. Um, good news. About two months ago, the kidney transplant team convened and they actually approved him. It might be even three months ago. Uh, 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 approved him for a kidney transplant. So the first step is you have to get on the transplant list. The second step is that the team who does transplant, the removal of the kidney, the, the placement of the kidney has to go, yeah, we're gonna approve you to be a candidate that can go through this process again. So that happened. But then your, your, your lady, Carolyn, she was the, she's like one of our, there's so many different people and um assistants and yeah because there's so workers. much more besides the physical you I mean you've got the financial aspects and all these so you have social coordinators you have financial coordinators and i don't have, know them from that either i don't yeah, know and you have uh your main kidney coordinator and i mean there's just so many people and you're in the doctor's office probably five days a week several hours a day it just seems like it's never going to end but you know but i asked her i asked her because she said i was like tell me the truth because we had to have our own conversation apparently he had to talk with her and i had to talk with her and i was at work so i was like well she can call me at work but you know i can only ask so she called me and i was like i can get it and i answered it and we were talking and i said okay i need you to tell me the truth i want to be excited about this kidney but if in this route, we're going the cadaver route, which that's another thing I want to say. Yeah. Um, this route, we're going the cadaver route, but I wanted to know, tell me the truth. Is this even, should I even be excited? Because there is no cure for his autoimmune disease. There is no cure for it. So it is always going to be in his body. So the pessimist, or maybe even the realist, one could argue says inside of me, what's the point? because his body's gonna do exactly to that future kidney that it did to this current one. And you know what she said to me? So I said, I need to know, have you ever seen someone with my husband's disease where it worked the second time? She paused and I'll never forget it. She said, we have, we don't understand why, but we've seen it work on the second time and even the third time. I have seen it. And that's all I needed. I just needed someone to tell me they had seen it. Yeah. And then I came home and I was like, we can, we still have this carrot. It still yeah. can happen. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be it, with his particular disease, with the little research and people I've spoken with who are deep into the research, his disease seems to have a better response to a cadaver kidney. Really? Yes. I, I told you that. I told you the lady, the um, I, I met a lady who is actually she is in Seattle mm -hmm. and she works for you guys have a big um, you guys have a big clinic and research facility there and I forget the name of it but it's like a big name and she was telling me she dove into it and actually she sent me a whole bunch of articles on it. Yeah, and so regardless of that, you know what was really helpful. 
is that this counselor paused and she told me she had seen it. They don't understand why, but they have seen it. And sometimes it, it happens on the second and sometimes it happens on the third. And they're not quite sure why. Medicine, that's the artistry of it. It is not deaf. We don't know. We're learning as we go. It's a practice. It's a practice. Yeah. It truly is. Yeah. yeah. So Matthew, I, I have to ask you, um, and by the way, I just, I want to just pause and, and, and say that I'm, I'm so appreciative of you both so openly sharing how this feels, because I know there are other people who will listen to this and find themselves in your shoes and, and not feel so alone. And so I really appreciate you being so open and, and so vulnerable. So Matthew, you, you went through the, the process the first time. It's undergoing a transplant, leading up to the transplant and post-transplant. It is very difficult for anybody who's, who's not aware. It is, it is just an absolute undertaking. And the medications that you need to take after the transplant to make sure that your body doesn't attack and reject that organ, it, I mean, it is, it's vials. It is, it is so, it's so much. So you've been through this once, it didn't work out as you had hoped that it would. Right. How are you thinking about this, this second one, especially now hearing there, this has worked, maybe the second time, maybe the third time. Mm -hmm. How do you keep yourself um, focused on, on, on moving forward and what's going through your mind? To be honest with you, I, at this point, I just take it day by day. I just, I know that I've got dialysis, you know, tomorrow and then I have it the next day. I'm not even really focused on the kidney um, because I'm just, I can't, I can't think about that. Yeah. I can't look that far forward and say, hey, um, this kidney's going to work or it's not going to work because then I just go into this place of, you know, not feeling good <laughs> yeah. you know so yeah. uh i don't know it's tough and you know and I mean, people also have to realize too uh, just to kind of go back not only is this happening you know with your body and happening with the new kidney but now you're sitting there and you've got your best friend who's just giving you one of his organs and now your body's destroying it and you're like why did i get his organ right why did i take his organ if my body's going to do this you don't know it's going to do that, but there was a possibility that it would, and the possibility was definitely came true on the first one. But at the same time, you're going through the emotions of, and then how does he feel? Like I wasted a kidney on this guy, you know, and that's what you're feeling. I doubt he felt that. No, and I even and, asked. And him we've that. talked to him about that. I mean, he didn't really probably feel that, but at that's all. what I'm thinking that he's probably feeling. We did. And so you start feeling like more of a loser. It's like I can't. I can't make anything work here. So <clears throat> that that in itself is is a whole another aspect of it. <clears throat> well, and I am a hundred percent certain that he doesn't feel that way. I and mean, you know, he went into it knowing that this may or may not work. And as you said, it's medicine and we don't know, but we give it our everything as as he was doing. And I and I I would surmise that he would do it again. And he said so. He said he would. Yeah. He yeah, said he would. Sure. If he had another kidney to give, he would do it again. Yeah. He without question. It was us who felt that, but yeah. you know, just felt it because you're like, it didn't. It seemed initially to feel like a waste. Right. And you, you know, you build in your mind this 
fairy tale ending of hey this is going to work out perfect and then when it doesn't you're like man you know and it, it's it's tough because then you know the road ahead of you is what it has already been yeah. you know and i haven't even gotten into all of you know the stuff that happens before you go on dialysis you your sickness your every morning waking up um Oh, yeah. yeah nauseous um mm -hmm. just all kinds of things going on with your body every single day and you never know what's coming and uh so that that part is difficult and then on top of that um we, when we were trying to salvage this kidney when we were probably about six months after the surgery my doctor's like you know we can try this this one drug uh, it's called cytoxan and it's basically a drug for chemotherapy. So then he put me on that for three months. So then I'm dealing with chemotherapy issues. My hair's falling out, um, those kinds of things. Skin is gray. Skin it was, is gray. Uh, it was, you know, just, just hard. Yeah, you're just going through a lot. And I'm sure not everybody has to go through that, but my road has been that. Um, the last time we saw each other, he was actively on that drug. Yeah. So, but anyway, you can't stay on that forever either. Right. So, what it did is it actually slowed down the process of the uh, deterioration of the kidney. It kind of leveled off while I was on it, but it didn't really get better. It just kind of stayed the same. Mm -hmm. But, and you, had so many I, other but you could only take that stuff for three or four months and then you're, um, it's just too toxic for your body. So once I came off of it, then the deterioration came right back. Um, and so I think that was probably about a year ago, around January that I came off of it. And, uh, by July, I was back on dialysis. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and, and in the midst of a pandemic, uh, of right. course, um, and do I recall okay. that you are doing dialysis at home or are you going into a clinic? I am doing it at a clinic. I have thought about going the home route, but, um, at this point, I haven't gone that route just because I, I don't want to bring the hospital into my house. This is like my one place of, of reprieve, and I'm going to the hospital so much. I'm I'm, I'm at seeing different doctors. Um, I just don't want that machinery in my house and all the supplies that go with it. I mean, you basically have to dedicate a whole room of your house to this, and so it becomes like a little a little dialysis unit mm -hmm. you know and uh i just didn't want to, i haven't wanted to do that and you <clears> thought <throat> about all of that in terms of the caregiver yeah it ups my auntie right and there's more, more i gotta her. do it's more on her because now i'm talking about you know right now when i go to dialysis the the techs there they come and they do all the needlework and getting all the stuff inside your graft and um uh and operate the machinery and all that. But now if you do that at home, all that is what you have to do. Mm -hmm. So now on top of the, on top of, and also you have to do more of it. You have to do five days a week. Mm -hmm. um, you can do three hours a day instead of four, but they want you to do it at least five days a week. And I'm like, that's almost every day that I'm doing this. And I'm having to do everything that goes along with it myself, clean the machine, uh, stick myself with the needles, um it's just it and we just, know what his abilities are right now so truly yeah who would really have to do all that yeah and it would put it probably would put a lot more on shade and so i would rather just go up to the text let them do it and uh you know at some point if it looks like this is going to be a really long term 
thing, then I may at that point decide to bring it home just because it frees up your life a little bit because you can do it when you want to do it. You don't have to be on a schedule. Um, so if I want to do it for two hours in the morning and two hours at night or whatever, I can do that. Um, not that that would be fun sticking yourself twice a day, but um, and it also frees you up if you want to travel because these machines are portable. So, you know, if you're if you have to be somewhere for basically five hours every other day, you're not going on a lot of vacations, right? You're not going many places. You don't have time to. Um, so that is one you know thing that would be an advantage of doing the home dialysis is that you can take the machine with you. You can go travel. You can do whatever you want to do. It gives you a little bit more freedom in life. Um, right now, you just kind of feel tied down to I'm either in my house or I'm in the dialysis unit. And that's mm -hmm. pretty much that's pretty much what every day is like. <clears throat> and do you feel do you feel concerned with the pandemic about going into a clinic or do you are you feeling that now they've got protocols in place that you feel safe enough? Well, I mean, it was certainly a concern in the beginning because I was already on immunosuppressants. Um, so my immune system was already operating at about probably 25% of what it normally a normal person would be. So I had already experienced issues with that, um, had viruses popping up in my body that I didn't even know were there um, just because my regular immune system would fight them off. But when I lowered it down to 25%, um, I remember just, uh, I had to go in the hospital for three days because of a parvovirus and you're thinking that's a dog virus but no there's a human parvovirus that, that 75 80 percent of us yeah, have it. it lives in 75 to 80 percent of the people but we're fine no but you're fine because your immune system handles it but when you isn't that a miracle when you decrease that immune system that stuff begins to pop out and so uh, I remember getting deathly ill no I mean, you really did literally my, I had to argue and I said look he is, he is not coming out of this hospital until you guys figure out they had, they had brought, bring in the hematologist. It was, you were there longer than three days. No, it was three was days. it three, but, it was about three days. But then when you came out, it was still like this. Yeah. Uh, it was a lot. So I know that. Yeah, my hemoglobin, my hemoglobin levels, the, the, uh, what do you call it? The, um, that's when you have the blood issue. I don't know. You know when you need the iron. Oh yeah, your iron. Your, well, I I think it is. Uh, I'm forgetting it right now. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Okay. Um, but anyway, anemia. Anemic. Anemia. Anemia. That's <laughs> anemic. it. Like anemic. Yeah, anemia. <laughs> so um, yeah. So you're anemic, uh, which basically is the transportation of oxygen in your your blood cells to your muscles and your functioning body. Um, when the, the, that oxygen level starts getting lower, you're not getting as much oxygen, you're, you're short of breath, um, just all of these he things. He was fainting. On. It was not fun. Yeah. <clears throat> he was like, he would sway, like I, he was not steady on his feet. Not that he's the steadiest right now, but he was not, it was just really. Yeah. It's like your equilibrium gets thrown out. I mean, it's, it's weird, but there's so many things that go along with it. I mean, you think it's just a kidney and okay. Um, I can't pee like I used to, but it, that's not it. I mean, right. that is part of it, but that is just the beginning. But they, yeah. but honestly, they're pretty, their protocol is very strong at the facility. Like only he can go in. I can't go in and be there with him, mm -hmm. even if I wanted to. Um, I think there's only like, you've only told me like one or two people where the exception has been made 
Everybody is masked. They're super clean. They come, they clean everything all the time. Yeah. Um, they keep it as a well oiled machine. And maybe mm -hmm. now that we're this many months into it in yeah. the middle of a pandemic, our level of comfort. Well, the thing is they're doing everything yeah. they can do. Yeah. I mean, um, to keep that kind of stuff out of the facility. Um, you know, I still have to be very careful um, because of the low, lower immune system. Um, when we go places, I try to avoid people as much as possible, um, you know, and those types of things. We just and, went which out is, to dinner the other which night. Which everybody is, is doing. Yeah, there was probably... We just went out to dinner the other night. We're like, yes, let's go out to dinner. We haven't done it so long. I was like, there is no social distancing. There was there. no social <laughs> None. distancing. I mean, every chair in that restaurant was full. People. and it made our daughter nervous yeah. she was like there's no social she's like i should we do we need to leave and we were just already it was that probably was my most uncomfortable yeah it was weird. <laughs> it's but all it's, it's also new you know what should we be doing what should we not be doing and it, it's it's hard yeah. to know but it also it also shows the problem that we're having with the pandemic it's like people aren't even listening to the rules and they're just doing what they want to do and that's why it's escalating so, so and i I'm in in defense of it too it's like i i see it in myself just a lethargy like a, a weakness uh an exhaustion of holding up that i see the fatigue i see the fatigue in my own behavior yeah. someone who wants to be careful who has a husband who at the beginning of this thing i would get naked at our door and put my clothes in the washroom. I wouldn't even walk in our house with my clothes on because I really was the only variable that was going out into the world. So I'm like, I'm the, I believe, and I see my own defenses, you know, waning and getting smaller and shorter. And it's because of this fatigue, but yeah. yeah. But we, but I think we're doing the best we can. Yeah, and the facilities are certainly doing the best they can. I mean, used to, you just walk right in, you go up to the counter and you say, hi, I'm here for my appointment. Now it's standing line outside, uh, wait for your turn to get your temperature taken, get your temperature taken, then that gives you approval to possibly go inside. And then you still don't get to talk to anybody. And they take you straight back to the room and they do their testing or you take your labs or you meet with the doctor real quick. And that's, that's it. So it's a, it's a completely different process now that the pandemic is here because everybody's trying to follow certain protocols and keep everybody as safe as possible, especially in our in our uh, medical, yeah. our medical facilities, but um, but yeah, it's uh, it's a lot. It's definitely yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah. I know it's a lot. I appreciate you painting yeah. a picture of what that's like. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, no problem. Um, Shay, I want to go back a little bit. So, <laughs> leading up to the transplant, so through the diagnostic period you were a real estate agent at the time and you really weren't sharing what was happening in your in your personal life and yeah. slowly you start sharing your story with people yeah and i want to know what happened that changed that you started sharing why did you why did you decide to start talking about your situation that's such a good question um i think i started doing it because i couldn't take the bifurcation any longer. I couldn't take this segmenting out my life any longer and interfacing with my husband who was facing a serious disease. The, the, 
the saying that life is short, that is real. That really is real. And I felt the realness of it. And I just did not have time to keep creating the narratives that made you comfortable and made me and, and, and allowed me to segment out my life. I was like, look, this is the flip who I am. You know, and what I'm doing is, yes, I'm selling you real estate, but as I'm selling you real estate, I have a husband who has a mortal illness, you know, that I, I fear and I think about how to support our daughter, how that she's not like overwracked with you. Because I just told him the other night when we were in bed, I said, do you know what the number one thing I feared when I was Kaya's age? That my parents would die. I remember feeling that. And I said, she is actively in it. And she doesn't like to talk about it and she gets whatever because she's that's the level of emotion which she has yes yeah. but so i think i didn't have the energy to to hold it up it takes a lot of energy to have this bifurcated life and i didn't have the energy anymore so just like i just told you about the mental fatigue when we go into a restaurant that clearly had no social distancing there was a mental fatigue like i was just like this is who i am and human beings are amazing. What <laughs> are you going to say? I was just going to say, and also, um, along with the kidding process, I think gave her uh, more of an ability to do that because she became my kidney advocate. That's true. I forgot about that. So even though I had a friend who said he would give me a kidney, the odds are kidney is not going to match. So we still have to be advocating for a kidney. So she was talking to everybody she could to yeah. let them know that, hey, my husband's in this situation. I forgot about that. Um, and, and really advocating for me in order to find a kidney. Because the idea is right? that the kidney, trans the recipient, he mm -hmm. shouldn't have to be, he or she shouldn't have to be in a space mm -hmm. always asking, can I have a kidney? Can I have a kidney? There needs to be an advocate, an ally for that person who, who asks who makes the hard asks yeah. so he doesn't makes, have to. It makes it known. Yeah. Really, you're just making it known. You're not necessarily saying, hey, can I have your kidney? <laughs> but Sometimes, you're like, no, no. <laughs> this, is what, this is what we're going through. This is where my husband's at. But you will be amazed. There were probably 12 or 15 people who stepped up just that she had met. And some were just almost strangers that offered up kidneys. I just and had an email last week. No, two weeks ago from a girl I went to college with that I truly have not seen. And I would not have no, even remembered her name. And I'm certain I would have thought she wouldn't have remembered my name. She DM'd me, she lives in New York City and she just DM'd me um, because people know that my husband's back on dialysis. So they know, oh shoot. Cause they were following the, the transplant you know, story. And she was like, hey, um, whenever you're ready to talk or you want, I'd, I'd really love to see if I'm a match for your husband. I, I literally just respond to her. I said, this is overwhelming. I want you to know that I see this and I feel every bit of it. Thank you. I'll get back to you. I just needed her to know immediately that I saw it. But I, I just want, I think the reason why I love saying that, I'm so thankful for you to ask that question. A, what made me stop? And then also, what was the response of the people around me? Human beings, I will never stop believing this. We have the capacity to be beyond amazing. Like just how when you were asking me what made me keep going when the things got difficult, because we have the capacity to do a lot of hard stuff, harder than we ever hoped or even thought we'd have to, 
harder than we could have ever anticipated. Well, just like that, human beings have the capacity to show up gloriously in each other's lives. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, there's a lot more good out there than you think. <laughs> there really is. Yeah. I, I will go down, I will go down believing that. Yeah. Good will always outweigh the bad. Yeah. Um, and, my and favorite so, story was the one where the lady came to you at the salon. Oh, that was amazing. That was true. Um, yeah, she just overheard me talking about it. Overheard me talk, getting my nails done. I told you this, right? Overheard me talking about it, getting my nails done. Uh, we're laughing. And because his buddy who gave him his kidney, he has a, a sense of humor. He's that guy who just holds court in a room and you just want to laugh at everything he says. <laughs> and they were one of the things, that, did you know that makes you a high risk donor is whether or not you they have a whole list of questions, none of which he had. But one of the questions is, have you ever been to jail, even just like county jail for more than 48 hours? You're considered high risk. Mm -hmm. um, if you've ever had male on male unprotected sex and Barry, who is completely married and a heterosexual, loves gay people, fine. He goes, I use projection every time. <laughs> that was his answer to that question. And so I was telling this and this lady overheard me and she came up to me when I was paying and I really thought I was about to be chastised because I was being so loud because I could feel everybody laughing and holding on to this story. And she was like, hey, I overheard you and I'm just, so, I don't know what I would do if that was my life, if that, if my husband or my boyfriend was experiencing that. She said, my brother and I just made a pact this year that we wanna donate a kidney. Can I give you my information? She said, I'm not a mother. I will never be a mother. Um, I'm very healthy and I have all the money I need. Could, could I give, could we exchange information this like middle-aged white lady who looked all like, I literally thought, oh, she's about to be like, girl, shut, you are being too loud in my nail space. And she didn't. She came over to exchange information with me and become, <laughs> see if she could be tested to be a kidney donor. And then sent me a photo, cause I had packets. Then sent me a photo a week later of her at the post office, putting it in the mail. Unbelievable. People are amazing. Yeah. And you know what I sometimes think is that had it not been for this journey, had it not been for Matthew needing a kidney, for you being his advocate, you would have never seen people in this way. And, and that's kind of the beauty of if you were just sort of going forth and doing real estate and Matthew is healthy, you wouldn't have seen human beings in this way that you did. And Matthew, you I saw think. people step up in such an extraordinary way, in such a selfless way, in a way that shows that strength of community. And I think that that's just incredibly inspiring. Yeah, it, it really is because, you know, we are fed so much with television everything all the negativity that's in the world and we don't stop to see what's really great yeah. and it's hard to see sometimes through through the lens of you know what's going on but it's there um you just have to take time to recognize it and see it um and 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 i think god gives us things like this you know to go through 
so that we can see those kinds of things. Yeah. So, um, you know, overall, it's been it's been a, a rattling experience. Mm. It's been, um, you know, it's been just a lot of every emotion you can think of. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's also good things that have come out of it. So being able to see that people are willing to step up and do things like that, um, you know. But you had to have the difficulty right. for people to step up well, to. Or you had to be in the situation. the situation. Yeah. You know? and, and a lot of times it's just making people aware of your situation because they're willing to do it. But if you don't ever let them know you're the situation you're in or ask them, they, they, don't, even they, know don't, they don't know what to They don't know how to help. Right. They don't know what to do. So um, that was really the big part of having Che as an advocate was just let the story be known, you know, just put it out there. Um, That's good, so, man. Yeah. Well, and it, it it's it's funny because Shay, you and I share a passion around telling stories, and yes. I'm I'm sharing your story just for exactly the, this reason that that we're talking about here, and I think it's so important and. I think sometimes it can be very difficult to share our story. And Shay, just from your perspective, I mean, you've interviewed so many people. Why do you think telling our stories is so important? Um, I think that telling our stories is critical because when we tell our stories, we invariably tell bits of other people's stories. And when we tell bits of other people's stories, they see themselves in us and we see ourselves in them. And all the things that make us think of the bad guys versus the good guys and those and them and us start to disappear because we're all just trying to live our lives. We're all just trying to do the best that we can. We all are just trying to occupy the space of life that we were all brought to this planet for. And when we interact with each other's stories, we see we see the same mo motivations. We see the same compassions. We see the same flaws. We see the same beauties. So today is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Maybe I'm not supposed to say that. Oh, please do. Okay. Why not? Yeah, <laughs> just because I was like, I don't know when you're gonna. So today is the celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And why, one of the things I just put out today was like, I don't wanna hear one person tell me about how many affairs he had. Because the point of him is not perfection. The point is in our flawed and brokenness, we can show up and be amazing. We can do amazing stuff. And we learn that we can do that when we see other people reaching and doing that, despite their flaws, despite their flaws. So I just know that it is, it's important. It's actually critical for our humanity that we share our stories with each other. Yeah, and I think, I think the stories just really point out to people that we're all just people. That's right? right. We're all just people trying to navigate this world. And almost every one of us is navigating something very similar to someone else. That's right. You're either having a hardship in finances, you're having a hardship in physical things, or you're having you know, other issues. So when you talk about it and you share that with other people, they they see and feel your pain in the same way that they're they know that there's somebody out there with them that's yeah. going through the same type of thing and you know and then it also for me it, it just makes all of the racist ideologies and things in the world just seem so ridiculous mm -hmm. because at the end of the day 
you know, whether you are Asian or African-American or white or whatever, you're just a person. Trying right? to live. Just a person trying to live. <laughs> and whether or not your skin is a little bit darker than, than this person's skin, who cares? But the what story humanizes it. it. The story, right? the story <laughs> makes it say that that is so ridiculous that you would even talk about that. Mm -hmm. because we can be talking about these stories and sharing with each other and and lifting each other up rather than tearing each other down or connecting with each other with these very similar things you're like oh that that happened to me that's the thing about like oh i felt that too and they might have felt it in a different context they might have felt it in a different era they might have felt it in a different nation but pain is pain difficulty is difficulty um Mm -hmm. beauty is beautiful like that stuff doesn't change. And if I know that you have experienced pain and I too am experiencing pain, I can, I feel connected to you. I think our sharing our stories does nothing but bring us together. Yeah. And maybe you found a way to navigate it, but that other person never even thought about. Yeah. Right. And so something that's helped you can then help tennis, just volleying it, whatever, whatever it may be. So, well, yeah, I think sharing, sharing human experiences is vital. Mm-hmm. Um, Matthew, you just touched on something that I think is is critically important. It's one of the missions of my um, my podcast, and that is when we're in the midst of it and we're there for the first time, we may not know how to go forward. And so, by having somebody who shared their story or shared what worked for them, gives that person a kernel of, oh, I didn't think about that. Maybe I could, maybe that would help me too. And so Matthew, are there resources that you found particularly useful as you have been navigating this experience? Um, for me, it was just educating myself a lot and understanding what I was up against, what I was facing. Um, I did a lot of research on the internet. I listened to what the doctors had to say. I, um, anytime we met someone who had been through the kidney process, we learned as much as we could from them. Um, yeah, it's not something that you need to just duck your head in the sand and say, hey, I've got this kidney problem. I don't have a chance. You have a chance, right? You have a chance. And there are other people out there who can help you see that. You just have to look for them. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And Shay, how about you? Honestly, people. I yeah. think the resources that I would mm-hmm. say is people. You know, um, there are people who want to support you. There are people who want to help. There are people who want to listen. There are people who want to love you. And that's been a huge resource for me because it's taken it out of the clinical, out of, I think, out of the cerebral and it, and it made it feel really in the heart. And so I just talked to people like that lady that I met who is actually a researcher in a kidney lab. I met her at a party at a cocktail party over a few beers and a glass of wine. And so people, people have been my resource. Yeah, for sure. Like you. Yeah, likewise. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, We touched upon this a little bit earlier and that's the unexpected gifts that come out of something that in the moment feels so devastating. And Matthew, I know that one of the things that you mentioned was just seeing this incredible humanity what other gifts have come out of your experience? 
Oh man, so many things. Just, just patience, more reliance on God. Um, just knowing that there's something bigger than me that controls all of these things. And there's really nothing that I can do about it, but just keep day to day, putting my head down and doing what I need to do. And, uh, just trusting that things are going to work out because if you go into it with a negative attitude, it's that's certainly not going to help you. Right. Mm -hmm. So any way I could find to try and stay positive, um, that has been very helpful for me. And that's actually, to be honest, that's, that is a, a, a kernel of greatness because his national, his natural propensity isn't to find the goodness. Yeah. It's to be like, this is this thing. It's never going to work. So it, it made him dive in. I mean, we would have sometimes conflicts where I'm like, you can't think about it like that. You can't just see it like that. And I think it, it made you dive in to believe that it had to be better. Yeah. Because sure. otherwise, what, you, what are we doing? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just waiting to die. That's it. I mean, you know? Yeah. You can't live like that. You know? I, his father, yeah. Anyway, was saying <laughs> something. I was like, look, every medical intervention we give between now and the day we die is trying to put off the inevitable. Right. So, don't, so don't minimize when someone has a medical issue that they were going to die from. Every medical issue, essentially left unchecked, we're going to die from. And, and our intervention to said medicine, medical help or, or, or problem, I should say, is in an attempt to put off the inevitable. But we don't put it off. We don't not get the treatment, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, my, my brilliance that I felt out of this is just really how damn good people are. Mm -hmm. People are good. And you know what? More importantly, People want to be good. Uh -huh. They want to be good. They want to do good. One of the first things I learned when you learn about like serial killers or murderers, the first thing you should do when you are in interaction with someone who wants to cause you grave bodily harm is you make yourself human. You appeal to your humanity and their humanity because deep down, we want to be good to each other. I, I, I totally am in, in agreement with you. So I have just a couple of questions left. And um, Matthew, I want to ask you what, what your greatest hope is. Hmm. Well, my greatest hope for sure would be that the next time that a kidney becomes available, that it would work and that I could foresee, you know, 15, 20 years into the future rather than just maybe a few years into the future while I'm on dialysis. So um, yeah, a, a kidney, uh, an operating kidney that, that worked mm -hmm. would be fantastic and would just really take a lot of pressure off. I mean, we would still know there were issues there, but just to be able to see and function and do things the way I used to be able to do, you know, um, that's what's, you know, can get so depressing because you know used to i like to go out and play golf i like to do all these things i don't have the energy to do it anymore you know and so basically you just wind up being at home and being on dialysis and being back at home and being on dialysis and it just gets it gets very difficult and then you're watching your wife try to hold up everything while you are really struggling yourself and you can't can't really help the way you want to right so yeah a, a very good functioning kidney um, 
that would many years it would change our lives it would it would it would change our lives Ooh, it would change our life yep i think my greatest hope would be that he would regain some of my hope probably lives in the land of miraculous but you asked me what my greatest hope was and there are no rules um mm -hmm. my greatest hope would be that he would not just regain it would be even better than he ever remembered in terms of his abilities that he finds his thing that he has a sense of purpose around his excellence because i've seen that fall off i see that he doesn't feel excellent i feel that he doesn't feel sharp and smart and and that that does mess with the the dynamic of our relationship right because at the end he's still a guy he still wants to provide and he still wants to protect but he he doesn't do either right now right so my highest hope my biggest hope right now truly is that my husband would get in this is very vulnerable and it's true just get in his lane of where he is amazing and he sees himself rise yeah and certainly through all this i've learned to appreciate things so much more because you do i mean you have the real reality of looking at death as a possibility right in this situation um and so now the little things like i never thought about um using the restroom before right but now when i can't uh urinate the way i need to 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 keep my body functioning properly that becomes a big thing you're like i wish i could do that yeah. it's the thing the little things that you take for granted you're like man that that's really important yeah you know, i really need to be able to do that peeing is good because peeing is good <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. right. it yeah. is <laughs> yeah and i think a lot of people don't realize that that you get to a point where you almost don't urinate and some people don't and so all of those toxins and things that your body expels through the bladder and the kidney they're in your body your uremic right your you your skin looks yellowy you get puffy you get you have extra water um, that you're not getting rid of and that's the purpose of dialysis you go to dialysis to remove all of that mm -hmm. and that's that's what keeps you going but um, at the same time, it's not an easy process because, I mean, in two days, I can gain 10 pounds of water weight. We have a little joke in our family. Yeah. I would like to lose about 20 pounds right now. And uh, sometimes I'm like, you think I'm going to lose? Because when he goes to dialysis, he'll come back 10 pounds, 12 pounds lighter because of all that water. And sometimes I'm like, just one. I just want one treatment. <laughs> just one little treatment. Yeah. Let me just go to dialysis. Can twice. I just get on dialysis? Just, just, just for a moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe that would help yeah. me. Just really, because that's what this is. This is water weight. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah so you've got gosh. anywhere from three to four kilograms of of weight that comes off of you almost every session. Yeah, those little things, I tell you. Yeah. We used to make fun of my mom because my mom had um, my mom had colon cancer. And every time she um toots and she passes gas she's like oh thank you jesus and we're like how about excuse me <laughs> but but when you have colon cancer and they remove a good chunk of your colon they will not let you out of the hospital until you pass gas so those little things it becomes these very biological small things become big things that you're most grateful for <laughs>
things that we all take for granted. Yeah, for sure. Every day. Yeah, for sure. Well, I have absolutely loved speaking with you both and thank you so much for for opening up before we close is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would like people to know become an organ donor yeah yes i think that's oh, what i would say absolutely it's, yeah you don't realize how much it means to people that need it um and I, you don't need it and you and you in this situation we have two kidneys and we can live off of one so it's easy to be able to help someone out that needs a kidney. Now there are other issues with hearts and things like that where you can't just give up your heart, but you know, but be a donor. If, if but something- even a donor if, posthumously, like right, I'm posth a donor. Posthumously be a donor. I mean, yeah. it's very important. It allows other people to live longer and, and just have um, longer and, and more quality of life. Putting off the inevitable. It's putting off the inevitable. We all will die one day, Right. but let's give as many years as possible to any per right. particular person. And so the thing that I want to say is, yes, become an organ donor. And specifically a story that encourages that is just two, two, a couple of weeks ago, we were all getting our teeth clean, getting our yearly, our six month clean. And they were asking me, how's Matthew? And, you know, it's always a hard question for me to answer because in a moment I'm trying to like, this is going to old Shay, the old people. I'm a people pleaser in recovery, um, like where I, I don't want to say too deep because I want to keep it light, but I want to be authentic and real. And so I was like, I don't know why, but the way my doctor asked me, I started kind of crying in the seat and she's, she's so beautiful to her, her like credit. She just paused and stopped. And I just said, you know, a part of me sometimes feels like a horrible person because we are praying and speaking and calling down his kidney to come to him. And I am so aware that I am asking for something that is going to be the result of the worst day of somebody else's life. And she let me say, and she goes, Shay, I'm an organ donor and it's not gonna be the worst day of my life. I've done it because I want to give on. I want to pour into others. I want for other people to be able to use what I no longer want. She said, I just had a client who came in one of our patients and her husband just died last week and he was an organ donor. And I can tell you this, the fact that his organs are going to help other people, it's a joy for her. It's actually not her worst day. And that really touched me because I felt a little dirty in a way, praying for this thing, you know? So I think what I would want to say is be an organ donor. And for those who are in my position, you're not a dirty person for wanting an organ from someone who passes. And that being the worst day of the people who love, be, who love them, because it's not always the case. It is sometimes the greatest extension of that person still being here. That's right. It allows them to live on. Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful place to end. I can't think of a better ending. <laughs> um, so I, I do want to go circle back to your hope and, and I am sending you both such, such prayers of health and a functioning kidney. And I want to thank you so much for your time today. It's been such a pleasure. I've loved every minute of it. Yes, Me too. Thank you. I love you. Thank you. Thanks for allowing us. I enjoyed it. You have a beautiful day.